You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Good afternoon. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on Living Writers, we've got a new episode featuring Gia Tolentino and her book of essays, Trick Mirror Reflections on Self Delusion. Gia first came to Ann Arbor in 2012 for the MFA program in fiction, and she returned last year in April 2022 to give the Hopwood Address. Here, we pick up with our conversation as Gia Tolentino talks about being a working writer now. Just, I'm just drafting this other piece while I, before I got on the Zoom, but I think, honestly, from being from the time when I was in a, in the program here, I started I started working in media while I was in my second year of the program. Okay. You know, and so I was teaching and taking class, but also you know working. I was working as an editor of this website, and I you know for better and worse, I I kind of operate best at having a lot of things go. I prefer to have a yeah. lot of things going on or nothing at all. <laughs> I don't have. I don't have a very good moderate speed. I've actually, I've gotten better at it um, with the baby. Like the baby kind of forces you to, um, you know, to also for better and worse to, to work at a more moderate pace because you just simply have no choice, but. Um, right. Or your energy level. I, I wonder, I imagine that might be what you can tap in and pivot to. Yeah, might totally. be different with a baby around. I know. <laughs> I used to be a night writer. I would I would work all the time from like 9.30 to 1.30. I loved doing that. And um, and that's that's just gone, you know, <laughs> like that's, right, that's right. out of the question. <laughs> I'm a blob by then. Yeah. The one moment that you can sleep actually. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Out of all of it. Well, well, Gia, could I, um, well, let me ask how I see these, these um, are time capsules of you in this moment as a conversation, but I, would you not want us to talk about your baby or what kind of things is there? We can talk about, we can talk about my baby. Nothing's I'm fine to talk about whatever. It's okay. Okay. Cause I also want to be mindful that as writers, sometimes it's like women writers instead of just writers, kind of like the Serena Williams thing with um, yeah, yeah, yeah. an athlete. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, so- I'm, I'm happy to talk about whatever. I mean, I do it in my work anyway, so it's fine. You know, <laughs> what was it like for you coming here for that? Cause well, and before that you were in the P- Peace Corps in Kyrgyzstan mm-hmm. and, and that seems like that must've been I don't, I don't know. I imagine it's critical in some ways to your writing and your choice to return for an MFA, but you, but you can't, and now I'm throwing a lot of questions at you, any thread that you like, please pick up on, but, but you came for fiction here too. And, Mm -hmm. and, and so I don't, I don't know you as a fiction writer yet. Yeah. I talked about this. I talked about this last night. Um, I, so I'd always, I had always written fiction, you know, I'd always written all the time forever since I was a kid in any way. I had written fiction, I had kept copious journals. I, you know, I I just wrote all the time. And 
I went to undergrad at the University of Virginia and they have a great creative writing program. Like I, I had Deborah Eisenberg and Ann Beattie as, as undergrad, as an undergrad, which was, you know, truly, I think you might've muted yourself. Oh no, I just didn't want to like, oh, (laughs) trying to do a visual cue without getting it. Yeah, she's incredible. And I, so I wrote fiction then, but I never thought I was particularly good at it, but I knew that I liked it. And I, when I was in the Peace Corps, I was trying to write, I actually had asked one of my professors if I should apply to MFA programs to see if I could write anything interesting. And he gave me the very wise advice of, you should just see if you can write anything interesting first. Like, why don't you just write the thing and then and, and then go from there? And so I took that advice while I was in the Peace Corps. And when I was there, I wrote all the time too. I sort of wrote, would write little things for my friends. And I was trying to work on a novel that I had conceived as being like I was at this point I was like I'm just going to try to write something that I can complete I want to try to write a book length thing that I can complete and so I had this idea that I was going to write a novel that was all going to be set on one single day in one summer and the main characters were four friends four girls in their early 20s and I had titled this novel girls and I wrote 120 pages of it um, in in the Peace Corps and then I was working on this one, this, this idea, I thought that I had an idea for a novel that I would be able to complete. You know, I, I didn't really have high hopes of it being good, but I wanted, I had this idea that I would write a novel where the whole thing would be set in like a single day, present day timeline of, yeah, like a single day in the summer and in Manhattan and it would the main characters were four girls in their early 20s and the title of the novel was girls and <laughs> I wrote um I wrote about 120 pages of it and then my laptop got stolen out of my backpack one day when I was in an internet cafe and it took you know it took the whole manuscript such that it was with it and I was totally totally devastated and, you know, I was like, it's a signal from the world that I, you know, I should give up on writing. And then a friend of mine, a friend of mine lent me his laptop, which in the Peace Corps is such a serious thing because it's, you know, it's your only source of entertainment, of possible communication, of, you know, you use it to do your work. You know, you're often alone in, in a village that is separated from other Peace Corps volunteers by hours and hours and hours. So my friend lived 15 hours away from me by a series of extremely complicated bus rides and he just gave me his laptop, gave me, he gave me his laptop and I, and he said, you know, it was like, I think you will be extreme because I was like weepy and despondent. And he was like, I think, you know, you will only be happy when you're able to write again. And it, you know, it doesn't matter about this book. I think that will make you happy. Like what you're, what you're unhappy about is that you don't have a way to write basically. And he was completely right. And I, and I came back from the Peace Corps and I was just trying to figure out a way that I could get somebody to pay me to write in general. I was, I was taking all sorts of odd jobs. I was, you know, copywriting like on Craigslist every day, just looking for random gigs. And I was looking for a way to just somehow get paid to write whatever I wanted to write. I was like, how do people do that? And I think that's still the kind of question of a lifetime. You know, it's still, I think, no matter how lucky you are in your career, it's like, that's the luckiest you can possibly get to be paid to write the things that you want. And um, and the only way I could think of doing that was to get into a fully funded MFA program. 
And the only ones that were fully funded were for fiction. And so, and I had written fiction and I had been writing it for a while. I mean, I, I didn't think I was good at it, but I was like, maybe I'll be good enough to get into one of these programs. And then I can actually see if I'm good at it. And then I got into Michigan and the program is so good. You know, and I was like, how could I not do this? You know, you don't, you only have to teach one year. You, um, I don't know if at the time the third year fellowship was guaranteed, but it was just so generous. And I was like, great. And so I came here in 2012, wrote, you know, was in the, in the program, loved it, made really good friends. And I was working on a novel, you know, the sort of, I was saying last night, it's the, the cursed category of the novel and stories, you know, it's extremely oh, really? hard to pull off. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. um, like, I basically only think Jennifer Egan can do it. And, <laughs> and I was working on this book and part of it, most of it was set in Kyrgyzstan, which was a mistake, but a mistake that I needed to write my way through. And I worked on this book for five years. I, I got an agent off of it here, um, which is another way that the program changed my life. And I worked on it for, I started editing this website called The Hairpin midway through the program here. And then I left in 2014 to take a full-time job as the fe features editor at Jezebel in New York. But I kept working on the novel. And then maybe two and a half years after I moved to the city, I was like, huh, this is not, this novel's not good. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to do anything with it. And so I just put it in a drawer and have never um, really looked at it again. But it was, how you know, you I realization. Like, how did you, how did that, because that sounds like a, a big thing to suddenly feel about it. I mean, we hear stories of that, right, Gia, all the time. Yeah. You put the first novel in the drawer, like you put it away, right? Yeah. And you move on, whatever that path is. But you said it matter of factly. So how, how did you know? Well, it helped on the one, you know, one of the reasons that I started writing, kind of working in media during my time here was that that always felt a lot more natural to me than fiction. I think, um, you know, I think of fiction like art and I think of journalism or, and, you know, at that point, really just blogging. That was work. And I'm completely confident in my ability to work and, you know, and execute a job. I am not at all confident in my ability to make art. And I think that that's not, um, a matter of what some people would call imposter syndrome or, you know, whatever, you know, or just the general sort of insecurities of the, of the writer. Like I, I, I think I don't, I've never really lacked confidence. Um, and I think I just, I know when I can do something and I know when I can't, and I've, I've never felt like I, you know, I had, I had the facility and the fluidity with fiction that I do with, um, you know, with journalism or certainly with first person writing. And so one of the things, but I, but with the novel, I wanted to keep working on it because it was like, I had an obligation to it and to myself to see how good I could possibly get it. And I think I got to that point and I was like, I cannot make this novel any better. And it is still, it is not, it's not worth trying to publish just because I have it, you know? One thing that really helped with that, because I think I probably could have sold it, but I, I think part of it was that I had started writing it long before I felt comfortable calling myself a writer. There was just something baked into it. I mean, besides the whole question of appropriation that was baked into the subject, um, which all along I had been like, you can only pull this off if you can do it in this extraordinary way. You know, it's, it's like the, the sin of such serious appropriation. I, I think it's completely doable, but you have to be, 
you have to be flawless. It, it has to be so, it has to be so full of depth and understanding that, you know, that, that kind of vindicates the audacity of the project. And I, I, I wasn't there. But it also, one thing that helped with giving it up was that I didn't have that, I wasn't struggling underneath the thing that I think you often are when you're writing fiction, which is like, will anyone ever read anything that I write? I had been kind of publishing the entire time. And, and that made, that made a, that made a difference. And that had also given me an understanding that my abilities had a, as a writer had changed significantly in the time that I had been writing on the book. And I was now on a, I was now, I now wanted any book project that I was doing to operate on a different level or something. And there was also, but I, I was saying last night um, in the Hopwood address that I think that was the most valuable writing experience of my life, writing a book that went nowhere. It's still actually in my mind, it's the platonic ideal of a writing experience, which is that you work really hard on something and no one ever sees it. Like I, it's the most pure thing because I still, the most satisfied I ever am writing something is when I'm writing it. Like I say this with the privilege of having found an audience and, you know, be at, writing things that people read, which I like understand is like an extremely rare privilege, but it, but the, it became clear to me, like the reason I didn't feel so, the real reason I didn't feel so disappointed giving up on five years of work was that like, I already had the reward, you know, I already had learned everything. I had already had the sort of agonizing private pleasure of working on that book. And then I didn't have to face the humiliation of having anyone, having anyone read it. Like it's to me, that's just ideal. I can hear that you're speaking genuinely, Gia, not earnestly, not modestly on yeah. this too. It's it's so it's so interesting to hear that it it helped you to solidify or to become even more of who you are with your your voice, which is so clear, which is so so you talked about writing as a kid, always writing what would that look like for you? Like, cause I can, cause we also have stories that, that we tell about ourselves, you know, but then there's also a reason for some of those stories because it's like this deep, like, you know, something about yourself, even if you're not aware at the time that that's something who you, like you are, I guess maybe because reflections on self-delusions, I think, cause I'm still in the, the work mm -hmm. of your book trick mirror here too, but yeah, what, when did you know that it was something that you had to do? Because even like you said, Ugh. your friend in Kyrgyzstan, he was like, you just need to be writing. I you didn't think that, I, I still don't think of writing as something that I have to do professionally in that it, oh, personally, well, you know, it, yeah. I, I think it honestly took until my friend said that in Peace Corps to even understand that as a narrative that was true about myself, which was one of the reasons I'm so grateful to him. Because other than that, it was something that I did like reading, you know, it was like always, I would read hundreds and hundreds of books a year. And, and I, and I didn't think of it like I had to do it. It was just like eating, like it was, it was just something that I had to do every day, or I didn't, feel like myself or I couldn't function. It was just so central to um, daily pleasure. And just, it was, and writing was the same way. It was like, I was gonna write whether whether or not, you know, I don't, I never showed anything to my parents or I, maybe I occasionally did, but it's not like I, 
I showed anyone anything. I was just always keeping a journal. I had a best friend in elementary school named Haley, and she also was a big reader and writer. And I think we sometimes would write for each other, but, um, you know, and then, but it was just, I just did it because then and now, and this is one of the reasons that I am kind of so openly skeptical of our minds sort of narrative generating capacities, but I, I'm, I'm really not able to think about anything very clearly unless I write about it. I, I actually like have an almost inoperative mind if I'm not writing, you know, I think yeah. it's, it's, it's something similar to what I was saying earlier, where I have to be really, really busy or I can't do anything at all. Like my, my brain is the same. I, I can't, I can't think. I, I have no capacity to think that's not externally, you know, that's not related to, to the act of viewing my thoughts on paper and, and manipulating them. I just, I have no cognitive abilities that are separate from writing. I, I really think that's true. And I think that's one of the reasons that I, as my friend noticed about me in a way that I hadn't crystallized until then, you know, I'm really only happy when I'm writing because otherwise I'm just this stagnant dumbass, you know, like I'm just this, like truly just walking around like with no idea what's happening, you know, I, I can't, um, I mean, you know, that maybe speaking about things to friends is another way that I process yeah. things, but, um, but truly without either of those things, I can't think at all, um, which was one of the reasons that it, during the pandemic, I was like, oh, this, this old brain, like, not working, <laughs> you know, um, and, but yeah, I, I just, it's, I think about it with, with my baby, who's now like 19 months, who's very, very verbal. And I, I wonder, you know, I wonder if she'll, I wonder if she'll be the same way. Yeah. Cause it's not like my parents ever encouraged me to, you know, and then neither of my parents, like they both like to write in their own way, but they don't, they definitely don't consider some, themselves writers. And like, I, I, I bet it must be funny to see a little seven-year-old just constantly writing in a little notebook, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Or those like yellow pads or whatever, yeah. you know, like just, uh, yeah. Did, um, have your folks seen the, the baby, like, have they had a chance to be like, oh, you were like that or. Yeah. Oh, totally. They, my parents live in Texas and I live in New York, but which, you know, I had always been fine with me to be very distant because I had, I left home when I was 16. It was, I was always like very, very independent and, but now with a baby, I'm like, oh no, where are my parents? Like, help me, I need a babysitter. But they they drove up actually in the fall of 2020 and stayed with us for a month, almost a month and, and took care of her. And she's very, she's very much like me in a lot of ways, which I think is funny for them. <laughs> what's, what's her name, Gia? Paloma. Pal oh, so, oh, so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, I'm so, thanks for talking with me about Paloma too, and how, I don't know, it seems like she's already going to, are you writing about her? Like, does she become, or are more of, are some of your subjects becoming, like, there's Paloma and life, and then mm -hmm. there's still what you're pursuing, because some things, I don't know, it almost feels like, well, let me just ask you, because you're here, um, <laughs> with the yeah. New Yorker, are there things that maybe you're the one that writes about them now so that mm -hmm. as things are ongoing or so like there's like oh that's kind of Gia's mm -hmm. realm or or yeah what's it what's it like for you and that kind of that work of it at the New Yorker for example 
I, so I had always almost as a point of deliberate, like a deliberate decision, tried to keep my purview as wide as possible. Um, that had, that had become, that was a matter of necessity when I was blogging and you just have to write constantly multiple times a day about everything. And I'm interested in a lot of things. And so when I got to the New Yorker, I, I kept it really wide also to not kind of stagnate into having only one particular thing that I wrote about. Um, and so when I first got there, I mean, I would write about books and music and movies. I sometimes write about politics. I would often write about sort of internet culture. Um, I would sometimes, I, I reported a couple of profiles. I you know wrote some longer essays. I tried to keep it extremely wide. And then, you know, in my book, it covers a lot of different subject, it covers a lot of different realms of subject matter. Um, but after my book came out, I, I had this like, radical disorientation to the idea of my work and my personality and my interests where the book was just much more successful than I ever thought it was gonna be. You know, it's, it's nine, nine essays of 10,000 words each. Like that's not, a particularly commercial sounding um, endeavor, you know? And, but the book was very successful. I was incredibly, incredibly lucky. And as a result, like a lot of the things that I had written about um, in a process of trying to step away from them, like systems of self-commodification or whatever, I had ended up right back in the center of them in the process of the book's publication and becoming successful and was suddenly in a place where a lot of strangers knew a lot of things about me, which was not something that I ever minded because I'm like extremely, I'm an extremely open book as a person. And I, and I, after all, had written this thing. I had just kind of forgotten that people would read it I because I, I didn't expect them to. And I still thought of it is something I was doing for myself, really, to figure out these things that I wanted to figure out so that I could stop thinking about them and sort of walk away from them. And, and you know, the opposite happened. And I felt, I felt a desire um, to just really change the way that I worked. I, I became wary of the possibility that I was sort of relying on my personality to, um, I was just leaning on my personality in my work in a way that if I did it for too much longer, that would become my thing. That would become the only thing that I could do. And so, and so I just sort of pivoted after the book came out. I, I, I've mostly, I've actually mostly been screenwriting over the last couple of years, which is an extremely depersonalized way to work. You know, it's kind of back to the realm of fiction. Like I'm not, I'm not present at all. There's no narrator. There's no me. Um, and then the things that I've written for the New Yorker, I have been mostly absent. Like it hasn't been what I usually do, which is threading through a concept or a, or a piece of reporting with like me as a, a present first person narrator. And I've been trying deliberately um, to not do that. And so, but it has been interesting because my life has changed a lot in the last couple of years, you know, like everyone's has, everyone's life has changed immensely. But, you know, certain things like the baby, like my, I, a lot of the things that I wrote about in the book, I'm no longer entangled with at all. I, I'm no longer interested. I'm off. I'm off Twitter. I I no longer am interested at all in the idea of self optimization. I, I really walked away from all of it. I you know now I have a baby. I you know I'm, I'm still fundamentally the same person. I still love to do drugs. I still go out <laughs> dancing, whatever. But I, you know I, I have a different kind of life. Um, oriented around different things. I haven't really written about it. 
And that has been kind of nice. I was just, I was just reading, you know, speaking of Jennifer Egan, I was just reading um, her book, The Candy House, which just came out, which is phenomenal. And a lot of that book is about the disappearance of private life. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I had written, and I think that's part of the reason my, the way I'm writing has changed is because I had written about that in many times in many ways, like the, the way that our culture and economy sort of instrumentalizes everything, the way that our attention is instrumentalized, the way that our personality, our relationships, our spare time, it's all instrumentalized, monitored, monetized, all of it, right? And I'd written about that so much, but I was participating in it very openly. And I'm I'm doing that less now. I, I'm not surveilling myself really in 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 many ways. Um sounds and- like my identity is different. Yeah, I mean, not not to the way it feels to me, but as it is in my writing, um, you know, I think I have a, a, I have moved towards the thing that I wanted to write about, which is to, I mean, the the ways that I wanted my writing to change, which is to pull myself out of it for a little bit and to try something else before I became, you know, the person that just wrote about advanced capitalism in 3000 word essays about why X was the result of Y. Like I, you know, I just, I wanted to, I think that's a real danger for, especially like opinion-y writers or critics is to kind of just harden into having a shtick. And I, and I, I've been trying to dodge and weave that. It's almost as if you could, I could imagine that you'd hear what you would say about something as it's like coming into your vision. You'd be like, oh, this is what I could, like pulling things automatically as a way of thinking about it as a writer, like what you would make of it as an opinion piece or as a, you you mentioned Gia that like you, you obviously when you put Trick Mirror out, part of it publishing is that people will read it, but that it was sort of strange when they did in some ways. Yeah. And so, so strange. Well, cause I think coming from here too, it's like, you, you know, that, you know, that literary fiction doesn't sell, you know, like it's, it's one of the great secrets or non-secrets that you learn once you figure out how the publishing industry work, you, you learn that Booker Prize nominated novels that you love sell 4,000 copies. You know, I, I had expected that that's what a book does. You know, I, I just, I, I had never expected to find myself on the other end of the, you know, of this, this like dramatically unequal lottery that is book publishing where a few people sell a lot and most people, you know, sell a few thousand copies. And I I just never occurred to me that, that I would end up on the other side of the, um, of the thing. It's, it's still like genuinely a shock. So what does that mean for whatever book follows trick mirror if it's mm-hmm. not a, a fiction a novel or if it's not a book mm-hmm. of poems you can do anything right you can with your voice but what does that mean for the next book well it, it definitely means that i'm not going to write another book for a really long time <laughs> i mean I, yeah i have no interest in, in going through in, in going through the publication process again unless you know i didn't want to write a book um like the idea of publishing a book, it's because I was publishing so much on the internet too that I didn't have that thing of like, will anyone ever read my work? I I had no interest in publishing a book to have a book published, you know? Like I think writing for me, it's just really, it's the end in itself, you know? It's not the means to publication. And, and I wasn't interested in writing a book. 
until I was like, this is a very specific book that I think I want to write. And it would be better. The only way it could work is in a book form because you can't read 10,000 word essays scrolling on your phone. Nobody would want to. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I bet in several years, <laughs> something, some idea like that might come to me again, but I have no interest in writing another book right now. Yeah. Although, I mean, I do always want to write, like, I, I would love to write a novel. And I always say like, if, if, and when journalism completely crumbles, I'll probably really try again. Um, but it's a lot harder. Um, why, why is it harder? Let's just pick up on that. Like, why, why is it because you're saying, well, for me, it's the thing that's harder for me, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, just, it's harder for me when you're walking around in the fictional world. Is it something that you can do in a similar way as I don't know, we, I, we were talking a little bit about how you might construct how these ideas come to you for these, these pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not so much the idea or the concept of it. It's just the, I think there's just, it's back to the art versus work question. It's, it's really, mm -hmm. the, it doesn't, it just doesn't come, you know, pulling reality out of nowhere is much harder for me than just seeing reality clearly and describing it. You know, the, the first thing is so hard. It's an act of kind of alchemy and magic. And, um, you know, it's like, I think I can write proficient fiction. I, I wrote, like I published this little short story at some point during the pandemic because some, you know, e-publishing house was just like offering me enough money that I could have an extra, you know, month of maternity leave basically is the reason that I did it. And I think that like, you know, I, I can, I can do it, you know, like I, I can do, I know I could write something passable, you know, um, but, but I'm not, I'm not very good at it. And which is, which is the exciting thing, which is the reason that I, um, I just think it would take me a long, long time to be able to write a novel that I was in any way proud of. Because you talk about it in ways like it would have to be extraordinary, it would have to be, and I know because the setting for your novel was in Kyrgyzstan, so there were other things at work while you were naming it that, but it's, yeah. it's interesting, Gia, to hear you talk because art versus work and how by thinking what you're doing is more work than art, it's like more approachable somehow, even though- I think so, yeah. <laughs> But, but even though what you're doing is art, like there's such, like, that's why there's a, like a class here, art of the essay, or, you know, like it's, it's an art to be able to do this, you know? Thank you. Well, you know, honestly, I, you know, I do think that's true. I do think, um, you know, there are certainly critics, essayists who I think of their work and just even their style and their voice. I taught a class at Columbia about just voice once. And I, and I do think that that's art in and of itself, but, and I also think that the, that having an education in fiction writing has been enormously useful to everything that I've done, right? I mean, you, you get used, I mean, I think that the experience of working on that novel, it taught me so much about structure and emotional structure and kind of tonal shifts and dialogue and sketching in a character very quickly and like economy of detail and sort of abundance of detail, you know, all these things, it, it gave me um, a kind of flexibility in the way that I tried to write things um, that I think has helped me immensely. Uh, but I think, you know, maybe it's also just part of this is me as a reader. I, you know, your first love as a kid is fiction always, right? And it's still like that with me. I still read more fiction than nonfiction. I'm still completely 
you know, there, there is, there is a qualitative difference in being just totally enveloped and totally swallowed and enmeshed in a fictional world that's irreplicable with, with an essay, you know, like, no, like an essay is an argument and, um, you know, fiction is a world in and of itself. And, you know, it's not always true. There are always, you know, boundaries, but I, or, you know, the boundaries are porous and, but I, but I think, you know, I, I, this was something that I always, that I was saying last night in the Hopwood address that I think is one of the most important things that people figure out when they're starting to write, which is like, you know, your taste level, and, and I, this is, it's like Ira Glass said this a long time ago, it's like your taste level reaches, a, your taste level reaches its sort of adult point long before your abilities do, you know, you know what's good long before you're able to even come close to it, right? And I think it's it's just something as simple as with nonfiction, I can write up to my level of what I think is pretty good sometimes, <laughs> sometimes. But with fiction, I don't know if I can, you know, and it's like I know what that level is and I just don't think I I can meet it. And I and I think that that and that doesn't like, and I say that not, you know, out of just like a almost like a dispassionate, like it's, that's just true. And I don't think of it as, um, I don't think of that as uh, anything other than like, it is what it is. And it's, and it's possibly exciting because that means that I have a lot in my life to learn and, and maybe get better at if I can. Yeah, it does. It definitely feels like more futuristic. Oh, what's going to happen next for Gia? <laughs> you know, it does. It, it definitely, it does. It's funny how, and I think one of the, the first essays in Trick Mirror, it was the one reality TV me, the last line is um, how you say, oh, well, spoiler, like that you're going to write a book. And so that was quite- I hadn't even remembered saying that. I was like, oh no. <laughs> oh no, I've been the same since I was 16. <laughs> but I mean, now it's also freeing because look, you've done it. Trick Mirror exists. It's in the world it's in hardcover and paper. You know, it's like now anything- anything is next and could be for what you, what you want to do. You mentioned screenwriting. So what are you doing with that, Gia? I have been working on a couple of movies. I spent, um, I've spent a lot. The first, I adapted an Edith Wharton novel, which was really fun. And then I adapted another book with, um, with one of my best friends who I used to work with really closely. And then I'm working on another sort of original story that's kind of a quasi horror movie. Um, and it's, yeah, it's been fun. It, it's been like, I mean, I think of it like, it's a lot of what I missed about writing fiction, but it's significantly easier because, you know, it, it is much more compatible with the brain space I've been in for the last 18 months, which is I have a child inside my house and, uh, and not full-time childcare. So, you know, my, just your time, I think one of the, I wrote so much for so long and I was alone all day and just had this sort of like the endless, this endless expanse of time to sort of think and write. And, you know, now, now that's chopped into 35 minute increments, but, you know, between things needing to happen less so now, because now the baby's in full-time daycare outside the house, but that only happened a few months ago. And, and so screenwriting, it was like, you can go in, do a scene, pull out. You don't need the sort of absolute stillness that you do to, really get in the zone for fiction. 
And it's, it's like the same thing, but it's all, you know, fiction, you're writing from the interior texture of someone's mind, you're gen like, the whole thing lives and dies by that interior texture. And you build the world out from that person's perception or actions. And with screenwriting, it's the opposite. It's all actions. And you, and you infer their, their internal texture from the actions. So it's just, it's the same thing, but it's outside in instead of inside out. And in that way, like I find it both, um, you know, like something that I've always loved to do, but also new. And um, yeah, I mean, I always, this is also something that I always think about, like, my main goal in work is for work to get harder, but in a more fun way. <laughs> like that's my only professional goal is for work to keep getting harder, but like harder, harder only in ways that I'm interested in. <laughs> exactly. <You know? laughs> not in the tedium, right? Yeah, not, like not in the tedium, yeah. not in that I want it to be less well-paying. Like I just, yes. I want it to be harder in that I want to, like I'm not really um, interested in things that I already know how to do which is also maybe one of the reasons I wanted to pivot the kinds of things I was writing after the book came out. I was like, oh, okay. So I was successful at doing this kind of thing. And now I need to try a different kind of thing. Cause I just, cause what else is the point, you know? Um, and this being a totally new skill set that I am again, like, I'm like, I'm not that good at it, but I can feel myself getting better. And that's like, that's all you ever want. Like, that's just, that's the best feeling in the world. Did it start with like, how did you start? Was it something about the Edith Wharton book that you wanted to adapt? So you pitched the idea or yeah, how did it? Well, a lot of Hollywood right now um, is very eager for non-screenwriters to come in and be screenwriters. <laughs> um, a lot of, you know, a lot of fiction writers have, have gone to screenwriting, right? Um, and why you do know, you think that is that Hollywood it pays a million that? times better? Oh, that, <laughs> why, that part I, no, that part I get, yeah, that part's clear. <laughs> Hollywood is looking outward. You like, know, that makes sense to me too. You know, and, and they want journalists too. Um, part of it is because it's just different kinds of storytelling. You know, people are eager um, and novelists, like, you know, you can see the, ki the kinds of shows that have, that have become sort of gold standards in the past decade, like Atlanta and Fleabag and I May Destroy You, these things that feel, you know, they're very much of one person's creative intelligence. They are, they are experimental. They are, they're textured, you know, they're non-traditional. And so I think that there's, even the market is eager for, for things that are a little bit more idiosyncratic, a little less, because screenwriting, it is all about, um, you know, a certain idea of structure and pacing and payoff. And, and I think, and while those things are still really important and probably still centrally important, I think the kinds of things that, you know, production companies and studios are looking for is a way to marry that kind of thing that makes people watch and watch and watch with a little bit of the weirdness and the, you know, the, the truly like literary texture um, that's making, you know, good TV into what it is right now. And, you know, I guess you see it like all of the, it's like the Station Eleven adaptation. Like there's, um, like there's, there's something to, you know, I guess as TV becomes more experimental, people are looking for people that can bring some of that energy it. to it. Yeah. 
when I was looking, like just reading about you a bit online, um, like the Guardian article, when um, the interviewer, I think it seemed like she had come to visit you in Brooklyn to do the interview or so. She says that the Joan Didion of our day, what do you think about, I mean, what do you make of that? Because I, I mean, I, you know, from what I said at the beginning, I love, I love your book, but I wonder what it's like to have that said about you. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, that's one of the things that I, I found, you know, again, it's, it's like a best case scenario in many ways, but that I, you know, akin to having your book actually sell, but it's one that it, you know, I, I basically completely close my eyes to, to that, to that comparison. I think it's, you know, it's obviously incredibly flattering, but it, I also find it, you know, to be perfectly honest, I find it incredibly depressing because it's like, um, you know, I'm like, if I'm the one you're comparing to her, like we're fucked, you know, we've got no one. And I find it, so I find it, I find it personally quite depressing. <laughs> um, it's, it's like the feeling of looking around and, you know, realizing like the, the adults are you, you know? Like, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, that's, uh, you know, but I, um, you know, obviously I, yeah, I just, um, I thought my book was, I, I, in general, like I thought the book was overpraised. Like I'm never very happy with anything I've written. I'm, it's not that I'm not proud of it, but I did think it was overpraised and it became hard for me to assimilate. Um, like it's like kind of very early on, I just separated myself from other people's opinions of it um, because I just never felt that way about it or about myself or, you know, and I think, I think, you know, that being said, I, I think Joan Didion is, is, you know, I think any sort of, uh, personality for like persona forward, first person, female essayist will get compared to Joan Didion because she's the blueprint, right? Her voice was so forceful, so direct. Her way of seeing was so unmistakable and it determined every single thing about the way she wrote. And she did it so successfully on so many different subjects. Um, but also Rebecca Solnit. Like, yeah, um, yeah. And in that way, um, and in that way, like, and both of those writers, I have learned it, 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 an immense amount from, and Rebecca's a good friend of mine. And like, she's been actually really instrumental. I remember she's, she's really the one, she gave me the push over the ledge when I was thinking about writing the book, actually. Um, I was like back in the back room with her at McNally or at the Strand one day. And I was like, you know, she's written 75 billion books. And I was like, I'm thinking about writing one, but it's scary. She was like, no, it's not. You could just, how many essays have you written in your life? Just write eight of them and that's a book. And I was like, you're right. And that's what I did. Um, you captured the, her rhythm of speaking so well then. Yeah. <laughs> but but with, the, with the Didion thing, I just, um, yeah, I I just, I pretend I do not see it. Like it, it just, it, it has, I, I see that comparison as having like, it's it just has nothing to do with me basically, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I can totally see that, Gia. I, I mean, I, I did it with you, but we won't know. And and it doesn't mean you, it's, I, she wrote everything too. So it's not like you're not meant, it's almost- Yeah, in that way, in that way, I do, that's another way in which I find her career, like, you know, personally inspiring is that she, she flipped between screenwriting and essays and fiction. Um, and, yeah. and, and that I, 
that I would, you know, like to emulate, but I, yeah, what I, I mean, my joke about that on book tour was that like, she's obviously a better writer, but I'm obviously a much more fun hang, <laughs> you know, because it's also, she, she wrote her, you know, she was this like cool, intellectual, dispassionate, you know, just sort of this like radically disconnected, um, you know, nervous, like nervous writer, like not there, nervous, but not there. Yeah. 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 And, and like, I'm, I'm the opposite. It's like very, very, um, like I, I, I couldn't, I don't have like a cool, calm intellect, you know, an inch of that in my body, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of interesting because I feel you saying that, but I also think maybe how the writing is, that is kind of cool, dispassionate in a lot of ways and humorous, like there's, but then you're able to go into this immersion and be open in a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I don't Okay. Last question. Can you tell me about your dog? No. <laughs> I've been so, when I saw I've been looking, dog, I was going to ask you the same question. I can see your dog behind you. What's your dog's that's, name? That's Hildy. Hello, Hildy. She's so sleepy. She is. She's just over, well, she's like 18 months now. She's the funniest oh, she's baby. She's a farm dog special. Yeah. Did your dog have part border collie? Yeah, part border collie, maybe part Akita, part Gopinis, we don't know. You know, she they found her on the side of a highway in Texas in 2011, which is when we adopted her. Um, but it actually, she, it's it's been really cute. Um, like now my baby loves the dog, you mm. know, and but but Luna still doesn't like the baby, you know. I mean, she she doesn't like she's very kind to the baby, but you know, she's like, what? Like, why, like this loud thing and just running around and like patting me all the time and going Luna 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 hi Luna hi Luna that's like what you hear all day long in my apartment because the baby's just like saying hi to Luna like treat 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 you know um and the dog's just like I'm old as hell like the dog <laughs> is now like she's 11 you know and so for big breeds that's getting pretty old and so now we've entered the humbling era of you know kind of senior dog life where like she's she's getting a little confused sometimes and she's getting more anxious and her her hips are giving out and it's really um I was just you know this morning I just I had breakfast in Ypsilanti with my old mailman Mike oh. um who I love like I loved him and he he was he loved dogs which is how we became friends like he Luna would always like try to you know, jump on him when we lived in Ann Arbor. And we became, I became friends with Mike, me and Andrew, my boyfriend, and we would like get drinks with him and stuff. And so I've seen him the couple of times I've come back here um, since I moved. It was really nice to see him. And we were talking about Luna. And I was telling him that actually one of the reasons I, that I was open to having a baby, you know, probably I was 31 when I got pregnant, which is earlier than I would have desired to, like if I was left to my own devices. But one of but one of the reasons that I was like, okay, this is right for now. Like you can, you know, this is something that you can choose to do right now is because my dog, like it sounds so, it sounds nuts to say it, but my dog, you, you know how it is. If you work at home, if you, if you work a lot at home and you're a writer, like, she had been my 24 seven companion since I was 22. And I was like, I can't go through a major life change without my dog around. Like I can't, I can't become a mother without my dog there to meet the baby. Like there was just something really important to me about having that 
continuity in my life. Um, and, and now I have it and I'm really like, and I, I like, I am, I am really glad that the dog and the baby are around at the same time, you know, sort of like a passing of the torch. Yeah. And it's lovely to hear. Hi, Luna. Hi, Luna. Hi, Luna. Hi, Luna. Hi, Luna. All day long. She says goodnight too. It's like when, when she's saying goodnight to the things in her room, she's like, night, night, tree, night, night, whale. Night, night, Luna. <laughs> it's really cute. So sweet. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah, maybe a, a, a children's book, um, Paloma and Luna. I, mean, I know that would be a good one. Yeah. Ready made. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well, look, I could, um, yeah, I could, I could talk to you forever, I think, but I ought to let you go because you need to get ready for uh, Alaska, Italy, and Florida, I think, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> is there, is there, you know, is there anything else you wanted to say about, I don't know, if we're looking at this like a time capsule, I don't know about anything, really. I mean, look, time I talked capsule. about dogs. Yeah. <laughs> Are we looking at this as a time capsule of what, the last 10 years since I've been here? Oh, it could be. I even think of it more just like you today. Yeah. You know, I will say something about today. I, I was like specifically, so Julie Bunton, who teaches, you know, in the MFA now, who I love and admire so much, like as a person and as a writer. Well, I don't um, know her, Gia. She's incredible. And she, I had an interesting experience last night where she introduced me before I gave the Hawkwood address. And, and I, you know, normally I have a reaction to people affirming me um, where I, I had had the reaction for so long after my book of just shutting it out because I was like, it's not, it's not helpful to internalize too much praise or criticism, you know, like it's like, you have to just keep doing it along your own internal compass of what works and what doesn't. And I tried really hard to just sort of, you know, not absorb, you know, not let the sort of like public perception make me think any differently of myself than exactly what I already thought in my head. But I had been struggling all week to write something, like figure out how to get into a piece. I'm like trying different versions over and over and it just didn't work and it was, nothing was working. I was like, oh my God, I've completely forgotten how to write. And then Julie gave me such, an, such a generous introduction last night. And I was like, okay, if Julie thinks that I can do it, then I can do it. And then I came home after the thing and just tried a new way in. And I think the way will stick. And I was just like, you know, I, it, it, it kind of reminded me of the basic thing that the MFA community always provided at its best, which is, you know, someone places faith in you to do something that you are not sure you can do at that moment. And then you just try to catch up to that. Um, and it's nice to find myself like back in Ann Arbor doing that again. It's really nice to be back. Come back again. I will. I got to see my mailman again. Yeah. yeah tell, <laughs> tell Mike I said hi. I will. <laughs> really good to meet you and talk. Yeah, to you too. I'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to Living Writers today with Gia Tolentino and her book, Trick Mirror, Reflections on Self-Delusion. Gia and I spoke back in April 2022 when Gia was here in town to give the Hopwood address. Thanks for listening. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. The 
maybe I'm in love with you I say maybe Maybe I'm in love with you You put your arms around me I'm in love with you You say that you believe me That our love is true I say maybe Maybe I'm in love with you I say maybe Maybe I'm in love with you Your love brings chivers My love in a stranger Makes me wonder if I know My own Some things once important, I know them now. I wouldn't know it if the world came to an end. I wouldn't know it. I say maybe. time we have left this hour, I'd like to feature Wolverine Isabella Little and her short audio piece from the class Collecting Stories. Hope you enjoy. 
One late night, I spoke to my younger sister, Sophia, about motherhood. She's only 19, and yet momming has always been her nature. What once meant protecting our two younger brothers from their nightmares now means pursuing elementary education and momming anyone she meets. She's just so excited to be a mom, she can't help but use the world for practice. I've always just felt, even with like other people outside of siblings, like my friends, like extremely maternal. Like I think I'm just destined to be a mom. Like over spring break, I was I was the mom. Even the people I don't know. Like Joanna, she's my friend now, but I didn't know her then. I spent the entire night in the bathroom with her. She was yakking. I was like holding her hair, you know, and like taking care of her. I took her back by myself. We we went back. I like helped her brush her teeth, wash her face, tucked her in. And I loved it. I'd rather do that than go out. <laughs> Is that normal? <laughs> like, I'm so serious. I love it so much. And, like, I'm trying to think of an example of Nikki and Lucas. I don't know. I just, like, really want to be a mom. I'm really excited. And it's funny because you're so, like, like, you're the opposite, you know? Yeah. I keep pictures of them in my wallet. No, you don't. I swear to God, it's in my wallet. I've picked pictures of them. Like, their school pictures, like, they're my children. And, like, it's really sad, but, like, when I, like, think about having kids, like, I literally start crying. And, like, um, it's kind of dark. <laughs> but, like, I get scared that, like, I won't be able to. Like, that's my, like, worst, worst nightmare that I won't be able to have kids. Worst nightmare. Like, I, like, I could adopt, you know, but, like. I don't want to think about that. I need kids. I need 80 kids. Probably gonna, I literally, I won't have like six. But like I won't. Realistically, I'd probably do like three or four. But like if I could, 10. I'm fine. I'm not tearing up right now. Was it done? Yeah. Was it good? It was very good. Okay. That was Isabella Little and her audio piece from the class collecting stories. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good one.
sounds there. Can you at least hear if you put that on? Is it like? Doing pretty well today. How about you, William? Well, I thought it was actually really interesting the other day. Aaron Judge um, made a statement saying that Barry Bonds still has the real record that he is trying to chase, um, which that was just an interesting comment for himself because, of course, he's very, very close to Roger Maris's record. But the fact that he still personally believes it's 70, 74, I believe, is Barry Bonds' record. 73. Yeah. So the fact that he still believes that's the actual record was interesting, at least for me, to to see where his perspective is and where he is in this home run race. Okay. Hi. There's literally not a mic for me. This feels like silencing female voices, but I'm going to allow it, I guess. 